0: Hello, and welcome to the new episode of New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies series. And as usual, I'm your host, Olga Breininger. So as you remember, for each episode, we choose an important book in the field of Russian and Eurasian studies, and we interview its author. And today we are having a very unusual episode, because we are going to be talking about the graphic novel. The author I'm interviewing today is Julia Alexeva, who is a PhD student in comparative literatures at Harvard University. And she will be talking about her graphic novel called The Soviet Daughter, A Graphic Revolution. It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker today, who is Julia Alexeva, author of The Soviet Daughter, A Graphic Revolution. Hi, Julia. Hi, thanks are, for having me. How are you doing today?
1: I'm great. It's a little cold, but <laughs> yeah, it's great, to, it's great to talk to you.
0: So we have a very unusual podcast today because we are talking not about an academic book but a book which I think combines both academic inquiry and also a creative approach which is a graphic novel and um, first of all uh, we usually ask our speakers about the background so could you please tell us about yourself and how you came to do what you are doing now. Sure.
1: Um, so my name is Julia Alexeva, and um, currently I am a PhD candidate at Harvard in the Comparative Literature Department, and I am also an adjunct professor at Brooklyn College in Cinema Studies. Um, but before that, I um, so I was born in Kiev. Um, my family is Jewish, and we emigrated from Kiev to Chicago um, in 1992. And, um, the, and so the, a lot of the book is like deals with my personal history and the history of the USSR. So I won't bore you too much with that now. Um, but we'll, we'll
0: definitely get to it.
1: <laughs> right, right. Well, like, so I grew up, um, in Chicago, but with a entirely Russian speaking, um, family. So, uh, I kind of had those two worlds simultaneously growing up. Um, like the United States and um, the former Soviet Union, pretty much. So, um, and then I moved to New York for college, went to Columbia University, um, studied English and French, and and then arrived at Harvard in conflict. And um, as I was doing my graduate studies, I realized that I wanted to take time off to do this graphic novel. Um, so in um, 2013 to 2014, I just took a, a year off um, moved back to New York from Boston and did pretty much nothing but
0: drawing this book for for about a year. Um, and here we are. <laughs> so taking time out of your graduate program to work on a book is quite a strong decision. So what was it that led you to thinking that right here, right now, this is the most important project you want to focus on?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I enjoyed graduate school and I continue to enjoy it now, but uh, my great-grandmother died in um, 2010 uh, after I had applied to graduate school. And um, in the summer between undergrad and graduate school, I found her memoirs, um, the memoirs that she had written about her life in the USSR. And almost immediately upon reading them, I thought this needs to be a graphic novel. Uh, It was kind of, I don't even remember how the idea came about it just was without a question like this absolutely needs to be a visual text um, and, and the because I always loved drawing it was it was um, very easy for me to um, imagine this as as a comic book and I've always been interested in comics but then I was going to graduate school and just thought well I don't have the time or the money or um, the health insurance to to do this right now so I, I pretty much waited until I could save up enough money, um, and after three years in graduate school, I thought, okay, well, I can live on this amount that I've saved up, and just did it, <laughs> and moved moved to New York. Um, and most importantly, I thought that if I didn't do this now, um, then this no one no one would be able to hear the story later on. Like it has such a prescient and important timeliness um, that I didn't even realize as I was working on it. Um, there were a lot of Difficult things going on between Russian and Ukrainian relationships in um, 2014. If you remember, that was when the plane got um, uh, the plane got shut down by yeah, Russia. Of course, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So all of that started happening as the, I was finishing the book. So then, of course, I had to try to finish it as fast as possible. Like, oh my gosh, like all of this is going on. Um, but basically, I just sort of thought, okay, well, this is now a time in. American history where people are thinking, uh, where everyday ordinary people are starting to think about the word socialism as not an entirely bad word. It was no longer a curse, you know, the way that it was when I was a child. So I noticed that kind of cultural shift happening and thought, ah, okay, here's a time when this kind of book might be important and interesting for people.
0: This is incredibly interesting. And do you think the sense of political urgency modified your project the way you saw it originally and the, the end result?
1: Mm, I actually don't think so. Um, I wrote out the entire script before I started drawing it. So there wasn't a whole lot of variation um, in terms of, like I, I, because it was based on her memoir and my own life, it's, it's entirely nonfiction. So there's not really much I could change um, although there's a lot of you know subtle manipulation I suppose I could have done but really the idea was there from the very beginning um, although I did feel the urgency to hurry it, <laughs> hurry it up and and just kind of get get it done so that I could send it to publishers um, however, when I received edits back from the wonderful publisher that I eventually found um, I didn't realize to what extent. The average the average reading public doesn't know very much about um, Russian or Soviet history this this really boggled my mind because I had been in the the academic bubble for so long and didn't realize that you know people didn't know what the pioneers were they didn't barely knew what the KGB was um, they didn't understand why everyone was wearing uniforms you know so these are things that I as In my editing, I had to explain a lot more than I thought I would have needed to. I thought, oh, they'll just get it. And no, they did not. (laughs) They did not get it.
0: So Mm -hmm. that was like an educational angle to your project that you didn't expect it to be, right? Exactly. I didn't really expect it to be
1: as educational. I, I sort of thought, oh, this is going to be a snapshot of life in the Soviet Union. I didn't think I would have to teach people about life in the Soviet Union as much um, but in my editing, I realized this is what people were interested in. And I I added things like little footnotes on c- certain pages and um, it became more educational in the editing process. Um, but I don't think I actually changed much of the original political political intent. I had always intended it to be um, subtly political in a way that doesn't overwhelm. Um, and I, I and hope this that- is
0: exactly what it became. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> in my opinion, it's very subtle.
1: Yeah, and I loved the um, review that you wrote of it in the very last line, where I think this was exactly what I was going for. I was trying to um, have a political angle that does not turn didactic, that, that tries to, to tell a story without um, avoiding politics, but without also alienating people that might not share the same political ideology.
0: Yes, this is how I felt very strongly about your your novel um, that you had a great balance between you know making political statements but also not inculcating a sense of politics, making this a subtle, nuanced part of your life, or and also your grandmother's life.
1: Right. Yeah, that was exactly the point. So I'm so glad that you that you noticed that.
0: And I was interested, was it the first time you worked on a graphic novel in your life or did you had experiences like that before? So this was the first,
1: this is the first time that I've ever done anything so intense and in so long. Um, I've been interested in comics for virtually my entire life. Um, everything but superhero comics, I could never really get into those. But but the kind of comics that you would find in a newspaper in the United States or at a local bookstore, I would absolutely, I would devour them since I was a kid. And a kind of embarrassing note that in in a, um, my undergraduate, I had a little a little um, one panel comic that was very embarrassing and at Columbia University, where it was like the trials and tribulations of being an undergrad. You know, it was very silly. But <laughs> um, but in the um, some of the summers during my undergrad years, I lived in Chicago with one of my best friends and one of her friends who then became my friend and he was a cartoonist. And, um, so in living together, I pretty much just like used all of his books to, <laughs> to, to develop my own knowledge of this tradition that I've only known a little bit about, except in my own kind of interest. And, in, in, I developed um, a knowledge of how he worked. Um, and and how how he was able to use materials and what pens he used, and then I started going to workshops and reading books about how to do that. And it was all experimentation. Um, like I didn't really know my style yet. I was experimenting a lot. And um, when I, in my third year of grad school, I had the opportunity to do a, um, a really intense kind of crazy freelance opportunity. For um, the father of one of my good friends, who was looking for someone to create a graphic novel version of a legal brief, so he is a lawyer, and he only had three days to do this this really intense work. And he reached out to a lot of cartoonists, saying, "You know, do you want? Can you do this? I'll pay you." And they were like, "No, I can't do this in three days. Like that's crazy." Um, he wanted a five page comic. Um, fully scanned, fully edited, done, ready to send off in three days. And that is almost impossible. Um, and of course me being kind of an idiot being like, yeah, whatever, I can do it. Like it was a couple of days before the semester started. So I, I, and I thought, okay, well, this could give me some recognition. Like I was totally unknown and it could give me some practice. Um, I have like five days left before the new school year I'm doing it. Um, so, <laughs> so it was kind of crazy. And um I had been reading all these books about how to do this. And I was like, all right, okay, I'm ready. And so um, he interviewed me. I got the job. And then I had three days to draw, edit, scan everything, this comic that he had written. And it was unbelievably painful. My hand felt like it was on fire for two weeks. Like I did nothing but draw, like for a good 15 hours of every day. Like I, it was Horrible, horrible, absolutely horrible. Um, but uh, on, and then I just sent it off. I got like some money for it and was like, all right, poof, whatever. That was done. I got some practice. My arm hurts. My hand is on. My hand is so much is in so much pain. But whatever. Like I need money. Like I'm sending it off. I put it on my resume. So I sent it off. And then two weeks later, in mid September 2012, um, it went viral. Like on weirdly in like lawyer circles and so some of my friends from undergrad who went to law school are suddenly emailing me like you were on our blog oh my god and <laughs> um and some of the law sort of circles picked it up so for like a good couple weeks I was like vaguely famous in the law law community which I knew very little about I know nothing about law but um but then it got a bit of recognition and I think and i was so happy I did that even though it gave me like some tendonitis (laughs) because it allowed people to when they, when I was like, when I was um, eventually trying to pitch the book, you know um, even though that was an incredibly hard thing to do to pitch a book without having any, um, any agent or any, any publicist working with you. um, They had heard, you know, even very vaguely of like, Oh, that graphic novel legal brief thing. So that had helped me a lot. Um, even though it was a kind of torturous thing in the beginning.
0: I really love this story. And I think your <laughs> protagonist, Lola, would have done the same if were she oh, totally this choice. Yeah, yeah she- sure, I'll just sacrifice my hand for a couple of weeks. That's fine. <laughs> Well, since you started talking about pitching your book and, you know, getting it to the publisher, please tell more about this. Because I know uh, that it was a long process. I know you made several attempts and uh, you succeeded. So we really want to hear that.
1: Yeah, it's been very difficult. Um, so the comics industry, there are not that many publishers out there that are comfortable with publishing um, graphic novels or really graphic anything. Um Children's books, obviously, are one thing. And then, but in terms of publishers that regularly publish um, full-length books that happen to be composed of, of text and image, they're really a maximum of 20, which is really not that much. And most of them are very small and independent. So what I had to do was go to – once I had the idea, um, and once I had a, a chapter or two written, I went to the, my local comics uh, store in Chicago and just looked at every book that sounded similar to my book, wrote down the publisher, and tried to contact them. Um, so at this point, I had very, very little created. But on, the, on everyone's website, they would say, you know, send us a chapter, and we'll get back to you. So I sent about, you know, um, 12 or 15 of these publishers a chapter, heard nothing, um, heard absolutely nothing, tried to reach out to people directly, Um, people I knew, I would meet people at, uh, comics and book festivals. And even though I received a lot of great positive feedback, I didn't really, I didn't receive any other, um, substantial information. Like I didn't get a contract. Um, I didn't get that many rejections. It seemed like it was just impossible at that point. And the more people I talked to, the more they just said, you have to just finish the entire thing and then send it off. Um, which I, I understood because it's hard to um, put so much of your time and energy and money into someone that hasn't produced a book yet um, and who is rather unknown. And so I just had to do the book for a year um, from September 2013 to um, about August 2014. I just had to do the book without trying trying not to think about the publishing process. I'm trying to just get the entire book written and drawn, and kind of ignoring that voice in my head that goes, "What if you never get this published? What if this just becomes a wasted year of your life? You know so I tried to push that aside, really like try to not listen to it at all, and um, it was only at the end of two thousand and fourteen that I had the courage to finally send it out um, and at that point, I was actually living in Japan because i'd come went back to graduate school and needed to spend a year in Japan learning Japanese for my dissertation. And so here I was in Japan, and I was totally scared of sending up these books that I had in my partner's family's basement in New Jersey. And they're sitting there, and I just had to say, all right, they're getting sent out. I'm going to like try to get help in sending them out. I'm just going to do it. And so finally, I did, and reached out to even more publishers, and the person that ended up responding was this amazing independent publisher from portland oregon um who published my friend greg farrell's book on the books so his book is about um he so this guy works at the strand which is a very famous bookstore in new york that i'm sure many people know um but his book is about union organizing um at the strand so i thought ah okay politics this is what this is my book deals heavily in in politics this is a publisher that is not afraid of um, political graphic novels. And I got such wonderful feedback from them. They responded in, in just two weeks. Um, Joe Beal, who is, who is the, the head of Microcosm Publishing, um, sent me this long email with suggestions and was, it was pretty much like, all right, so we don't really know who you are. Um, this work has a lot of promise. You'll probably have to edit it a lot, but if you're interested in doing this, we can work with you. And then just a couple months later, we drafted a contract and, and, started the the whole process um but of course at that point i was still in and i am still in graduate school so i had to sort of find a time to fit all of this editing and all of this bureaucracy and and promotion stuff between graduate school so it was it was complete craziness for years
0: Well, and since we are talking about um, your grad school, let's make a little detour into your academic work, because I feel that the two you are doing are really related. And talk about your dissertation, which I know is on avant-garde cinema, right? Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so my uh, that's funny that you think they're related, because usually I tell people that they're not related at all. Um, They are. no, Well, just because it's, you you know, people think, oh, are you, did you write this graphic novel for your dissertation? I said, no, 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 no. (laughs) Um, Even though that has been done, Nick Sazanis, who graduated from the Teachers College at Columbia University, actually wrote and drew his dissertation as a graphic novel, um, which I didn't know about until I was already drawing my own graphic novel. Um, Something tells me my advisors would not be that into that. But (laughs) um, I... Um, so my, my, my academic work is, uh, an analysis of, um, avant-garde documentary traditions stretching from Ziga Vertov in the USSR to the sixties and seventies in France and Japan. Um, so I work mostly in cinema, but also a little bit with graphic narratives generally. Um, I'm very interested in the combination of text and image with which I think um, is perfectly represented in cinema and animation, which is also something. I told that,
0: they are related.
1: Yeah, they absolutely are, but in a way that is not often. Um, yeah, it's just it's it's very rare for someone to make those connections. So I'm very glad that you did. <laughs> yeah, um, I would in the future I would like to do a lot more academic work on graphic narratives, just because I think there's just so many similarities between. Um, film and media studies and graphic narratives, especially animation. And unfortunately, right now, graphic narratives, I think, are um, lumped into literature departments, which is is fine. Um, but I think it's so much more than just pure literature. There, there's nothing wrong. Obviously, I'm a comparative literature scholar. Like, there's nothing wrong with literature. But there's so much visual analysis that goes on when analyzing graphic narratives that I think people assume, oh, you know, if I write uh, an article or two on comic books I can just treat this as any other novel which I, I don't think is correct in the same way that when analyzing a film you have to treat the the um, formal elements of what the camera's doing and what the scenes are like and what the shots are how the shots are composed what the mise-en-scene is like so in a similar way I think you need to combine um both textual and formal analysis when analyzing and when analyzing both. So that's my little soapbox that I like to go on when I talk about comic
0: books. (laughs) So where do you think the study of the graphic novels belongs in the universities? What departments? Yeah, that's a hard question.
1: Um, I don't think there are many departments that it would fit perfectly in yet. I think this is something to think about in the future as departments sort of get shifted around. Um, I personally think they belong best in a comparative media studies department. Um, somewhere where you, where people are capable of switching between um, literature and film and um, something like animation and graphic novels and music and art, like all, so, somewhere where all of these can be analyzed um, in a very particular way while also comparing it to other fields anyway. But I'm not exactly sure those departments exist yet in the way that I'm envisioning them. And as, as someone who is still on the job market and doesn't um, have a lot of say in these things, I, I hope that these kind of departments are um, created in the future. But so far, I'm not exactly sure where they would be. Um, perhaps some comparative literature, that would be a, a pretty good place for them.
0: And how do you see combining your academic and creative work in future as a professional? Oh boy. <laughs> um I would like to
1: as I said before I would like to work more on the academic study of graphic novels just because it's it's um reflected so easily with um the study of animation and film. But yeah, I would like to also do more um graphic novels that are not completely related to academic work. Like I really think there's something to Having a work that is non-academic—that um, I didn't—I didn't want my graphic novel to be um, an academic work whatsoever. And I think, in order to reach a larger audience, and I think there's something valuable in in something more mainstream. Um, I don't want to do it super often. I have to admit that it is a very difficult and extraordinarily emotionally and physically taxing process that one really needs to set some time aside for. Um, so in the future, I don't think I'd be able to accomplish something like this without some kind of substantial government grants, you know, it's just so, so labor intensive. Um, and you know, this, this, the project that I, that I had was very emotionally driven. It was, it felt very needed for me and for, for other people. Um, so I would, I would, right now I'm still waiting for that next thing, um, that next book that I think is, is so necessary that it needs to get out there that a story that I want to tell so badly that I would sacrifice you know a year or more of my life in order to do it and so right now I, I think I need to take a break more than anything
0: <laughs> I see I see um, <laughs> well going back to the graphic novels I was wondering if there are if you have any favorites or examples you were looking after uh, in your own work like oh something.
1: yeah mm-hmm. absolutely um I so I think this this requires talking a little bit about how I um how I drew the book or how I composed the pages and things like that.
0: And let's do uh, this.
1: Yeah, that's great. So, um I I love talking about it cuz I can get really nerdy about things like technique and reference photos. So, um so I created the book with tons and tons of reference images. Every chapter um com- was was composed of and every chapter was only it was only between 8 and 12 pages, but Every chapter had probably around 100 reference photos that um, that I found either by going to the library and finding images of Soviet life in um, even like coffee table books or academic books. Um, I would take so many books out of the library that were historical and they had like a lot of illustrations and photographs from the time. Everything was very, very, very researched. And um, every page was so full of information from other sources that I compiled until it became a kind of palimpsest where there were all of these different references that were constantly piled up on top of one another. Um, One of the main references that I I took in the book, obviously, I took um, references from hundreds of family photos. Like I went to my grandparents' house almost every day for a summer and just looked through their albums and scanned them and scanned them. Um, And got and um, asked them, like, where was this? What was happening? And, you know, they were very, very happy to tell me all of this. And um, on top of that, I, I um, watched a lot of film from that time, which was very easy for me, because I study film. um, And it's a big part of my dissertation. But any film that was set or filmed in the time periods that I was discussing, like, say, during the Civil War, um, in the Soviet Union and the earth in um like 1921 like i would i would find films that dealt with that i would look through historical footage from early um early soviet film and newsreels and things like that and just drew it took lots of screenshots sketched the screenshots compiled them into folders in my computer and um worked with a lot of reference photos that way um to get like a sense of very very nitty gritty time details like which buildings were up on the street at this time. Um in Kiev, what did the, the um what did the main avenue look like in um 1935, like before the war? What did it look like after? What did it look like after the Germans bombed it? What did it look like after it was restored? You know, these were all things that I thought about um and tried to find a lot of historical information to to discuss. Um, and then the other Kind of strange references that I that I would use in the book were from um, were actually Japanese manga and especially girls manga. So this is this is sort of technical and academic, but Japanese comic books, which are called manga, are separated into the comics for girls or sh- or shojo and the comics for boys or shonen. And so um, and the two have very different stylistic qualities. Like the ones for for boys are full of very thick lines. They're very blocky. Um, a lot of them have to do with action and events and what is um, usually around sports or war, things like that. And then the the girls' manga or shoujo is very emotionally driven, are sort of full of flowers. They're more kind of um, expansive and fluid. And um, although importantly, I have to note that even though one is called girls' manga, one is called boys' manga, it's not like actually gender discriminatory, like both men and women read both. Um so it's just a a sort of standard way of talking about it, but it doesn't mean that they're restricted in any way. Um anyway, so I was I was really fascinated by the way that in um girls manga things just kind of splayed out over a page. Like there were very few panels Um, It was very, very abstract. Like one page can be entirely composed of a girl surrounded by rose petals. It was all over the place and totally fascinating. And I didn't even really read them for the story. I just found scans of them online and tried to copy how they dealt with emotion. Emotion was so keenly conveyed in those kind of looser structures And um, so I just had tons of images that I had saved on my computer of the way that the pages looked um, and tried to include sort of more fluid page constructions or page layouts when I was creating the book to make the the book have a more um, emotional effect without necessarily having to say this person was sad. This person was happy. You know, I mean, everyone knows the, the show and not tell thing. So I was trying to show and not tell with, page layouts instead of having a character explicitly talk about their emotions.
0: Um, And then uh, how about things like the Persepolis or the mouse? Um, These are some of the things which come up with regards to your novel. Um, Did you see any similarities between the kind of work their authors were doing and yourself?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I was very consciously trying to fit the book into a longer history of comics and graphic novels, especially autobiographical um, graphic novels, historical graphic novels. Um, obviously, Mouse. I was very, very um, impressed with Mouse when I read when I read it in high school. Um, it's been constantly in the back of my mind, and same with Persepolis. Um, and especially after having read Alison Bechdel's Fun Home, um, with the way that she used text and image, and how she described events and how she was able to be so raw about her own family that was extremely influential for me. Um, something that I did while I was reading it was actually take um, a month off to teach a January term class at Harvard on um, the nonfictional graphic novel. Um, so I took some time off and um, created a syllabus for Exactly this kind of book in order to to p- try to put it into a context and try to stay really involved and interested in it So I included Mouse and Persepolis um, as well as a book called Epilep- uh, Epileptic by David B. A French cartoonist um, There are a lot of books like this that they that they um, that were very influential for me and um, continue to be very influential for me um, although I have to admit that as I was doing the, uh, as I was actually creating the book, the books that I was reading were usually not graphic novels, but lo- like the long novel, the great novel of many different mm-hmm. historical traditions, because um, I thought, oh, well, I have a year off. Um, this is the time that I have to read all of the books. And so I read like Anna Karenina and Moby Dick and all of these um like a lot of Victor Hugo, I pretty much it was like the year of the long, thick novel, um, which actually, strangely enough, made it easier to visualize the book as a longer um, as a complete long thing um, because it's so easy. As I'm sure, you know, like working on a dissertation, you you kind of get lost in one section of it and it's hard to kind of to get air and to um to to figure out what the entire thing will look like. So weirdly enough, reading like the great novel um, made, I think, the pacing a little better, Um, made me understand how a certain chapter worked in the context of the whole. Although obviously autobiographical graphic novels were extremely, extremely important and um, an extremely important source of influence for the book.
0: Well, I think it's a great time to ask you to tell about the structure of your book, how it is organized, how does the narrative flow in it? Of course. Um, so the book
1: is more or less chronological, although it goes back and forth in history. The book is composed of um, 12 chapters with interludes between each chapter. Um, so the chapters are my are straight from my great grandmother's memoir, um, entirely in her words, but translated into English. Um, these are um, moments from her life directly in the Soviet Union. So it stretches from um, her birth in 1910 to um, her death in 2010. And um, her narrative stretches pretty much through um, through the early pre-revolutionary years through the Bolshevik Revolution, the Civil War, um, the Stalinist purges in 1937-38, of course World War II and then um, Stalinism and the death of Stalin, and then the thaw. So all of that was, view- was seen in her own memoir, and I translated that into English and made these into separate chapters. Um, so this is, those are entirely her own words created, in, but I, of course I supply the images. And then between each chapter is an interlude in my own voice. And these interludes are pretty short um, compared with the, the chapters, which are from 8 to 12 pages. The interludes are anywhere from 3 to 5 um they're they're rather short, but they're in my own voice, and they're about my relationship with my grandmother with my great grandmother um my relationship with um my family and um uh, the emigration experience since I emigrated in nineteen ninety two they're a little more personal um a little more raw, I think in certain ways they're a way um to explain to the to show to the reader how close my gran- my great grandmother and I were um, and how distanced I felt from the rest of my family and from um, a certain experience that they shared in the Soviet Union that I did not share. So it's a way of kind of connecting the, um, the reader who might not know that much about the Soviet Union to the story. And especially it's a way to link the two generations together. So one of the, the kind of smaller theses that I have running through the book is that um, the millennial generation has a lot that is shared with the ideals of um, what is called the great generation of the people that grew up around and um, fought in World War II and um, grew up around that time. So before the boomer generation like that, I, I, I've always felt that like the people that I've met from that generation had a lot more um, idealism and um, a sort of strength that, that I felt conveyed in, with my own friends and my own and, um, experience of m- the millennial generation. So I, that was one of the theses of the book, this combination of my great-grandmother's generation and, and my own generation coming together in a certain way. Um, but of course, 80% of it is my great-grandmother's story and 20% of it is my own voice.
0: And uh, you said that uh, your great-grandmother's ma- story is based on her memories, right? Yes, it is
1: um, straight out of the memoirs. I I don't remember a time that I changed her words. If I changed her words, it was only to use a word that is more um, under like easily understandable in English. Like if something was an acronym, like as 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 I think you know, like Soviet speak is full of acronyms that no one understands in, in the American context. So then I changed those, but pretty much everything else, even her sentence structure, I kept from the memoir. Um,
0: uh, I, I was curious about your work with the memoirs. How did you decide what things to include and what not, what to focus on? And, you know, how did you reshape her story into your version of her story? Yeah, that's a great
1: question. Her memoir was very long. Um, my great-grandmother, oh no, my um, my grandmother, my great-grandmother's daughter, Tatiana, um, helped me type it out. So she... Um, was a lot more used to my great grandmother's way of writing. So my great grandmother, as, um, as you know, since you read the, um, the comic book didn't have anything more than a fourth grade education. So her handwriting is kind of difficult to understand. It's very shaky and especially because she was writing it when she was in her nineties and eighties. Um, so she helped me kind of understand what she was saying and typed it out. um, which was incredibly helpful and she was very happy to do it to help, to help me understand this, the script. And, um, at the end, once we had once we had transcribed the entire thing, it was something around 60 pages, single spaced in Cyrillic, which is an incredible and huge amount of material. Um, I think I ended up using only four or 5% of it. Um, so what I had to do was read through the entire thing several times highlighted the the parts that I thought would represented the historical period Um, uh, because she wasn't a writer and because the purpose of her writing the memoir was not to get it published, it was just for her own sake Um, and maybe for the sake of the rest of the family, but she wanted to do it for herself. And so a lot of the information in the memoir was sort of extraneous information about other family members like you know, what cousin married what other person? How they met? Um, w- taking a vacation with them? You know, who whose cousin knew this? Who this other person? This other like person that she knew in Kiev? What they were doing? Where they moved? You know, so a lot of that was she was just trying to remember as much as possible to to stay lucid, you know, to stay um, focused and in her in her old age. Um, so a lot of it was just kind of information about the family that I didn't think was that important for other people to know. Um, there were a lot of wonderful things that I wish I could have included a lot of like very um, sweet family stories that I, I, I had to not include. And um, it was basically, you know, I had to kill the, I had to kill my darlings, you know, in, in, in the parlance of, of creative writing workshops. Um, but I tried to include and incorporate obviously the most important times in her life that she had to make a decision, you know, where she had agency. This is what I wanted to include, you know, why she decided to do this, um, what path she took. So it was less about the people that she knew and more about her own, um, way of living in the world. Um, so obviously this is stuff like her getting married, um, her getting involved in politics, her, um, her second marriage, her, um, Feminism in a way that was not feminist in the way that we usually think about it, but true kind of um, earlier feminism, if that makes sense. But um, so I tried to find these moments in her memoir that were the most they were very dramatic, but also the most kind of powerful images of her as a as a human being that I thought would be inspirational for other people.
0: So, do you think that um the way your great grandmother knew her and the way she comes across in your book, do you think these are different characters in the end? I actually don't think so um
1: she pretty much remained the same person throughout um throughout her life i want granted this is a person that is filtered through my eyes, you know so maybe people, other people that she knew might have had a different um a different understanding of her. So this is a person that I was very close to and that I loved. And so my, my own lenses, right. are very different from how other people view her inherently. But, um, I think this is like what, after I wrote the book, I, you know, I, I read it through again and thought, okay, yes, this is conveying the person that I knew that I loved. Um, I think when I showed the book to other people that knew her, um, they thought, ah, oh, yes, this is they. They they did think the resemblance was there. Um, I think they thought that she was a little more of a um, and excuse the language, but a bit of a hard ass. Like I think they thought, <laughs> I think they thought that she was very bossy and domineering. And my my grandmother's um, experience of her own mother is always like, oh, she never let me do anything. She was so strict. She was she was always in charge. You know, and like, for, you know, if. Um, if I were the daughter of someone like that, I would, I would probably have different opinions. Um, but to me, she, because she was never that person to me, she was a lot kinder and a lot sweeter. So she comes across maybe not as much of a, um, of a cold hard bitch, <laughs> but I kind of love that, you know, like I kind of wanted to uh, say that there's nothing wrong with being like that as that being a person that, that, that knows what they want and that go for it and, That won't take no for an answer and that will um, will will try extraordinarily hard to get to to get to a place that they want to be, because that's something that I think, you know, the millennial generation also was accused of. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all, being that kind of um, ambitious person.
0: Well, there is definitely a very strong sense of dealing with, you know, a personality when you're reading your novel. But there is also a feeling that the reason why there isn't a lot of like, you know, this intense self-analysis or self-reflection is because the very historical circumstances your great-grandmother was put into did not allow her space for doubt. She just had to act rather than uh, sit there for, I don't know, days considering what to do.
1: That is a very, very good point. Um, and I think that's something that is also reflected in people of post Soviet background now. Um in my reading of other books, like I had ju- I've just finished um Boris Fishman's amazing novel, A Replacement Life, and he talks the exact same way about um elderly elderly post Soviet people that there's no space for doubt. There's no time to ruminate on these decisions. You just make the decisions and you have this trauma and you don't, you know, you're because psychology was sort of frowned upon. You're, you're taught not to um, not to sit and, and, and stew over these life decisions and not to analyze them. You're, you're, you get very used to putting them aside and just acting, you know, rather than getting obsessed over the details. And that's not something to really be, I'm not trying to praise this, and obviously, I I don't necessarily agree with that way of dealing with trauma. But it is something that I think is inherent to people that grew up in the Soviet Union. In my experience, where um, there's a kind of silence, you know, where you don't really talk about the the deep dark place, you know, that you came that um, that is either inside you or that you came from. You don't really talk about that, and the gap, the silences. Are in themselves important and people will understand them Um, that is other people in this generation or from the circle you understand what these silences mean um, from what your parents say like they might not tell you all the details about something but you'll know in that gap that there is something important there Um, and that's actually some a roadblock that I ran into after uh, the book was released where a lot of the reviews that came out, or like just that people were talking about the book on, say, like Goodreads or Amazon, would say, "I wish that she, that that the book had talked more about the kind of emotions and taught." Like she must have been so um, so fraught with with all of these you know, feelings and and decisions, and she must have felt so um, she must have felt something. Um, why didn't you talk about that? Um, but from my perspective, you know why would I want to include all of these additional emotional burdens when she herself did not include them in the memoir? Um, and the way that people talked about that time is very, no nonsense, very this happened and this happened. And including all of these kind of extraneous, very American ruminations, I think would detract from the power of that experience. Um, Cause it's just not something that they do very often. I think people from um, what is now Russia or Ukraine or Belarus or Uzbekistan, like there's, there's this idea of a silence um, and I think there's something powerful in l- kind of listening to that silence and trying to figure out what the silence means rather than adding all of this additional emotional labor um, that might not actually accurately reflect their experience.
0: Well, following up on that, of course, the theme of the relationships within family and relationships within generation is something which is very important to your book. And uh, I wanted to ask you how you feel um, the emigration and the experience of uh, being an immigrant adds to those difficulties within the family. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that is, (laughs) uh, I think it became a big problem. Um,
1: I'm I'm a part of this kind of amazing, funny um, Facebook group called the Anti-Trump Soviet Immigrants Group. Um, And in reading other people's experiences, it seems that it is very common for people who emigrated as children from from the former Soviet Union to have an extraordinarily different worldview from their families. And that creating an enormous rift in the family and amongst the community generally of people from that area. So people who emigrated after... Um, when they were older teenagers or adults, um, people who emigrated from those countries in the early 90s, um, when that wave came, um, that generation still held all of the Soviet values and were very, very, very... um, It seemed to be traumatized by that experience and decided to stick to what they knew oftentimes and to not try to assimilate too much. And... um, Basically created these havens in the United States of Russian-speaking zones where you basically didn't even feel like you were in the United States. Where I grew up in Chicago, everyone um, was pretty much a Soviet immigrant, at least in the first couple of years. Um, my great grand my my grandparents talked to no Americans ever. <laughs> um, they we shopped at Russian grocery stores. We got we had Russian TV. Everything was. Ukraine and Russia, specifically Russian speaking. And um, by contrast, they have these kids, these people of that generation who grew up pretty much American, um, torn between these two worlds of this very emotive, expressive, um, let's talk about our feelings all the time, American, (laughs) American people and the people that they go to school with. And then they have their parents who are diametrically opposed to this, this personality. Um, so I have found it to be very common in this, uh, um, in young people who came over around that time where to feel that extreme rift in their families. And I think this, this created a lot of the, um, this, the scenes that you see in the book where I, I feel very different from the rest of my family. Um, and I think it continues to be a problem, not only for myself, but for other people that I know, um, And especially people that I've met through this, this Facebook group, Um, but it becomes, it it becomes such an enormous cultural rift between the members of the same family that I don't know if it will ever be, be solved. It might just have to, it, it might just be an inevitability. It seems almost unfathomable how to cross that gap.
0: Well, thank you a lot for your sincerity and for all your insights you share with us today. As we are heading towards the end of the interview, I perhaps have one more question to ask you. And this is whether uh, you envision your, uh, your book being translated into Russian and whether you would like it to be translated into Russian.
1: Yeah, I would love um, for it to be translated into Russian. I've tried to get into contact with a couple of um, people and it and although the feedback has been has been surprisingly good, <laughs> all things considered. Um, the difficulty is that right now it seems that Russia and Ukraine are still in the very beginning of um, even getting people to read comics. It still does not appear to be very popular. Um, like Mouse was only very recently translated into Russian, and a lot of publishers don't know. It appears don't know how to. Um, go about printing it um, or might not have the funds to do something like this. And so I, it's it's been a continuing effort. I got very close to publishing it in Ukrainian. I actually have a, a rough Ukrainian translation um, of it. And eventually I would love for that to happen. But it's just a matter of money um, because of economic difficulties, as you know, and the political difficulties between um, Russia and Ukraine that it, it didn't end up working out, but it's something that I would definitely be, be interested in, um, especially since I already have the Russian, um, since it was translated from Russian, I think it would be uh, a, an obvious project to do, but it's definitely something I, w- I want to look into more in the future um, to getting a translator for it.
0: Well, I wish you the best of luck with this. Great. Thank you so much. That means a lot. Thank you so, so much. All right. Thank you for being with us today and have a great day. Of course. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Julia Alexeeva, author of Soviet Daughter and Graphic Revolution, as much as I did. Please stay tuned for more episodes of new books in Russian and Eurasian studies. And the next time I'm going to be interviewing Rebecca Gold, author of Reiters and Rebels, the literature of insurgency in the Caucasus. So this is something to be looking forward to. And until then, this was your host, Olga Breininger. Take care, and goodbye.